Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. And I should like to draw our attention this morning to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20. If you would turn there in your copy of the scriptures with me. We're using the Pew Bible this morning, page 929 is where you can find our text, 929 in the Pew Bible. I was sitting around the dinner table on Monday night, uh, fairly excited, uh, telling my family what we would be talking about this Sunday morning. And my wife, after I was done said, that sounds great. Are you going to be able to get through all of that? And I said, yes, confidently. I said, yes. <laughs> but she was right. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to get through all of it. In fact, not only did I have to swallow my pride once, I had to swallow it twice because I, I sent the outline to Jan on Thursday for two points. There were supposed to be four, so I already cut it back to two, <laughs> uh, and we'll get through one today. <laughs> so. But praise the Lord for His Word that is always faithful and always true, and that we can always trust it and that it doesn't rely upon me this morning, it relies upon Him and upon the power of His Word so in reverence and respect for God's word, would you stand with me as we read Acts chapter 20. I will begin reading in verse 13 through the end of the chapter, through verse 38. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when we met at Assos, we took him aboard and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that 
he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of all the the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves. And to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, what we have not give us, what we know not, teach us, and what we are not, make us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated.
do you know someone who has had all of the advantages that life has to offer afforded to them? They have everything that they needed, everything necessary to be successful, all that the world would judge to get them going in the right, deject, in the right direction, only to see them squander everything. To see that one in whom there was so much hope, so much anticipation and expectation, and expectation of how great they would be or how their life would be successful and prosperous, only to come to ruin. Disappointment, utter failure. It is devastating and tragic to see that happen. And I wonder if for a moment we would consider the church in Ephesus. This was a church planted and established by the Apostle Paul. It was a city where he went preaching the gospel and where many were saved through his preaching. It was a church he had spent much time with, teaching them, training them, building them up, and encouraging them. In fact, out of all of the other cities and towns that Paul visited during his missionary journeys, he spent the most time in Ephesus, three years. Think of all of the advantages that were afforded to the Ephesian church. If there was a church who you would think had the most, had everything that they needed, had the best prospects for the future, of, for moving forward, for being a healthy church, you would think that it would be the church in Ephesus. So my question becomes, how does this church, which we would say started out so strong, how do we get to what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation? Do you remember what, what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus in Revelation through the Apostle John? Let me remind us. Here's what Jesus says in Revelation 2, 1 through 7. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Ephesus, the church that looked to begin so strong, so healthy, they had everything they needed, everything necessary to be the church that Christ wanted it to be. And now look in the book of Revelation. 
as this warning has come upon her. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What is Jesus saying? I will take you out, church of Ephesus. You will become a dead church. You will be no more. And it was Jesus Christ himself who would remove the lampstand. That church had everything it needed to be the bright lampstand shining forth in the dark region of Asia. A church that should have been used by Christ to disperse and displace the darkness. The church whose flame should have been a blazing torch had come to the point where it was only a flicker of light. And what was the one thing that Jesus had against them? They had abandoned the love they had at the beginning, at the inception of their church. How could this church that was began by Paul, that was instructed by Paul, that Paul gives these final instructions to in, the, in Acts chapter 20, that Paul wrote a letter to, inspired of the Holy Spirit, which is in our Bible, which we can still read today, how was this church that was pastored by one of Paul's closest understudies, Timothy, how could it get to this point? Why do I bring all of this up? Because I believe it is a demonstration and a warning for us as to how important these final instructions are to the church in Ephesus. That these instructions that Paul gives Ephesus are not just for Ephesus, they're for us as well. We have to come back to them time and time and time again. We cannot forget them. We cannot and must not dismiss them. And it doesn't matter if we've been started by the Apostle Paul himself. It doesn't matter if we have all of the advantages that we could imagine afforded to us. If we lose sight of, lose sight of these dangers and these instructions, it is perilous, my friends. These are the words that are to be branded and seared upon our minds and upon our hearts. We must heed them with all earnestness so that we live out these principles in our church. So that we, do, so that we will not hear the words from Jesus, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from this place unless you repent. And that is no idle threat. That is judgment for a church that no longer resembles Christ's bride. Jesus' holy name is at stake in his church. Paul is making his way to Jerusalem. He's on his third missionary journey. He's traveling with a company of men. They've been traveling with this financial gift for the church in Jerusalem that's been collected. He's trying to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. Pentecost was a Jewish festival celebrated 50 days after Passover, roughly seven weeks. We remember Pentecost from the book of Acts as the day when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the believers. And Peter gave that precious sermon in Jerusalem. We see Paul here meet his group in Assis. Basically, they're sailing down the eastern seaboard of the Aegean Sea. And on this journey, Paul makes a conscious decision. 
he will not stop in Ephesus. Think about it. That's the place where he spent the most time, the people he had known the best, people that he loved. But he decides to pass on Ephesus. He knows it would have slowed down his progress. He's trying to get to Jerusalem. But because his heart is still connected to the church in Ephesus, he calls for the elders of the church to come to him while he is in Miletus, a port town just south of Ephesus. And notice carefully here what it says now in verse 17. Paul called the elders, that is elders plural, more than one. He called the elders of the church, that is singular. How many elders? More than one. We don't know how many, but we know there's more than one. How many churches were these elders coming from? They were coming from one church. This is one verse among others that we would say teaches that it is normal and accepted and even taught that in the first church, they had a plurality of elders in one church. That's why we follow that here in this church, plurality of elders. And so Paul calls the elders from the Ephesian church. They make the 25-mile journey south to receive these important words from Paul. We might call it what Paul considered to be his farewell address, his last words for the church. And they are necessary words, not only for that church then, but necessary words for us today. These words were directed towards the leadership of the church. And while directed to the elders of the church, they are still words that the whole church needs to hear. That is why they are written down and recorded for us. We have to see that what Paul said to the Ephesian elders has an impact upon us. It has an impact upon our life in the church. It is meant to form and shape our understanding of gospel ministry. In two words, that's what the church is about. The church is about gospel ministry. That is service that is completely centered upon the gospel. And notice with me this morning that what Paul says to the Ephesian elders is such that it transcends time. It transcends culture. It transcends location. It transcends any false distinction between the mind of ancient man and the mind of modern man. These principles of gospel ministry can be and must be applied to us and to this church today. How foolish would it be for us to say, well, this worked for Paul at this time. This was important for the church way back then. But we are so much more advanced. We have come so far. These principles are antiquated. They are out of date. There is no way the church can go on with these principles. We have to adapt. We have to move on from these. We have to improve these. There is no way that we can reach the world with these principles. How utterly disastrous it would be to say such a thing. Yet I fear that for too many today, they act like it. For too many, it is too antiquated, too ancient, too boring 
too simple. But these are the truths that we must hold on to as Christ church if we are to be Christ church. Because this is what he has laid down for us so that we could be the church that he wants us to be. These are the most basic, most fundamental principles. And it's nothing less than wholehearted gospel ministry. It is gospel ministry that envelops all of who we are. Not part, not partial, but our whole heart is to be given to gospel ministry. So the first principle of four this morning for us. Gospel ministry is a way of life. Gospel ministry is a way of life. You can follow along there, the outlining for bulletin if that is helpful, but number one this morning, and again, that's all we will get through. <laughs> number one, gospel ministry is a way of life. But don't tune me out yet. It reminds me, if you go back, you remember the tube TVs? And you'd watch the TV for a while, and then you flip the TV off, and it would still be on. There would still be a glow there, right, in those old two TVs, tube TVs. It's amazing how much our expectations have changed over the years. We expect now that when we flip a switch, we press a power button, everything is there all at once. No waiting, no warming up, no cooling down, just on and off. Whenever we say on, on. Whenever we say off, off. Instantaneously. I fear this is how too many Christians can approach gospel ministry. Like a switch. You turn it on sometimes. You flip it off sometimes. It's there when you need it. But you don't need it all the time. You don't need to be involved all the time, so you flip it off. And they go about their lives trying to flip it on and flip it off. Sometimes even believing and deceiving themselves that they are being effective, that they are helping and promoting healthy gospel ministry. But that is not gospel ministry. We have to see what Paul says here to the Ephesian elders. Look at it. You know how I lived among you from the first day I stepped foot into the region of Asia. Paul did not say, look at how I lived among you on Sunday. Or look at how I lived among you when we were gathered together. No, he says this, look at all the time I was with you. Look at those three years. Examine my life. I lived among you. You saw me. You saw my character. You saw the way that I lived. You heard the words that I said. You beheld the actions that I took. Living among people is not just something that you do on Sunday. It is on Sunday, but it's also more than that. Gospel ministry is to influence the whole way we live our life. It's supposed to infiltrate every nook and cranny of our heart so that you live life intentionally towards God and towards other people. <laughs> to whom would you be willing to say, Remember how I lived among you the whole time I was with you. And be able to ask that question with full confidence and without hint of embarrassment. Without one hint of guilt. Without one hint of shame. 
Does it mean that Paul lived perfectly? No. But it did mean that the whole direction of Paul's life was driven towards serving the Lord. Maybe you would argue this morning, well, this is just for pastors. I mean, Paul's talking to the elders of the church. It's just for the leaders of the church. Or you would say, well, this is just for the super spiritual, upper echelon, top tier Christians. To that I would say, first, it is directed towards pastors and elders. So that means that my life, the way that I live my life as pastor in this church, is of utmost importance to you and to your life. My concern for my holiness and my godliness in my own life has a direct and important correlation to your life, dear Christian. Listen to what the Scottish minister Robert Murray McShane says. A minister's life is the life of his ministry. In great measure, according to the purity and perfections of the instrument, will be the success. It is no great talents God blesses so much as a great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awesome weapon in the hand of God. This is not just something that I could put on in public. It's not just something I can flip on and off. No, the whole of my life must be going in this direction. Otherwise, am I not just like the disastrous Pharisees that Jesus rebukes when he says to them in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are all like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So yes, this is most definitely for me as a pastor and as an elder. But what is one of the reasons that gospel ministry is a way of life for me? Why is that? Because I am seeking to set an example for you. My aim as a pastor is to say with Paul, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. We can't miss this. Don't miss this. If there's, if there's one thing you get today, this has to be it. How necessary it is for us to see that our lives and the way that we live our lives has a direct impact upon one another. You hear that? It's necessary for us to see that our lives, the way that we live our lives, has a direct impact upon one another. And this is completely un-American and anti-Western way of thinking about ourselves. Why would I say that? Because of what our culture tells us. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whomever I want, without regarding anyone else. If it makes me happy, it can't be that bad. We would like to say that we can live any way that we would like to live and there will be little to no impact on anyone else so that no one could tell us how we should live our lives but not so in the church. Gospel ministry is a way of life because your life directly impacts other people's lives and because of this, we see that our lives are not our own. 
That is why Paul says, this is how I lived. I lived serving the Lord. Wasn't Paul serving the church? Yes, but in serving the church, in living his life in the church, he realized that he was serving not merely other people, but that he was serving the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In fact, he really says that he was slaving under the Lord Jesus Christ. How many would recoil at that word today? How many people would be be disgusted by that? But slaving, being a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, is the greatest place of freedom. It's the greatest place of peace. It's the greatest place of joy imaginable. And all because of who our master is. Our master is not a slave master as we think of it. He is the Lord over all things. The one who has given himself for us. This is the reason why Paul did everything. Ultimately, he did it for the Lord. Loving the people, serving the people was praise and glory that he was giving to the Lord Jesus Christ through the way that he lived. How was this service to the Lord expressed in Paul's life? See it in three ways here. First, humility. Serving with all humility. Do you see that? It comes next. What is humility? Paul describes it this way in other places in the Bible. He tells us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, Romans 12, 3. Or, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. This means serving the Lord with no rivalry, no conceit, no selfishness, no self-centeredness, no demanding your own way, no demanding your own preferences. I've heard humility described this way. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not thinking of yourself at all. I don't even know if I'm able to do that. (laughs) But I pray that I would. Because here is what serving the Lord should do in our lives. It should stab a knife into our heart of pride. It should slay the dragon of pride in our lives. If you are serving the Lord with pride, guess what? You're not serving the Lord. You're only serving yourself. How completely contrary this kind of service is because we are constantly told in our worlds, get ahead, climb the ladder, promote yourself, make a name for yourself, get recognition and attention. Then you will be successful, then you will be satisfied, then you will be happy, then you will be great. But what does Jesus Christ himself say? But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Matthew 20, 26 and 27. Is that your view of greatness? If not, let us fall on our knees and ask the Lord to recalibrate our notion of greatness and realize the necessity humility plays in our lives. 
How else did Paul serve the Lord? He served with tears. Why tears? Was Paul an overly emotional guy? There are a few other places talk about Paul's tears that he has for specific churches. In 2 Corinthians 2.4, Paul says he is writing to the Corinthians with tears because he loves them. In Philippians 3.18, he says he has tears for those who have been destroyed by sin and now walk as enemies of the cross. So, Paul loves people and he knows the danger and destruction of sin. It is why later he says in this text that we're reading that he warned or admonished the elders with tears. He loves them so much he does not want to see them overcome with sin. Paul's tears show that he was invested in the Ephesian church. He didn't hold back from them. He didn't hedge his bets with them. Paul invested his life in the church, and his tears were proof of how much he loved them and just how truly invested he was in their lives. Are you invested in this church? Are you invested in the people of this church? Do you care about the people so much that you would warn them of their sin? You'd warn them of the destruction that sin can bring about in lives and that you would love them with all that you are. Not a little bit, not hedge your bets, but say, yes, I'm investing here. I'm investing with these people because I love them because I love Jesus Christ. Finally, Paul said he served the Lord with trials. The specific trials mentioned are the plots of the Jews against him. Think about it. If there was ever a time to take a time out, if there was ever a time to stop serving, wouldn't we give someone a pass if they were going through a trial? They were being persecuted? People plotting against me. People slandering me and speaking all kinds of evil against me. People seeking to hurt me and harm me. People seeking to take my life and kill me. Good. I'm serving the Lord. That was Paul's mentality. Trials, specifically those brought about because of gospel ministry, did not stop Paul. No, Paul served the Lord with those trials. How many of us, when faced with trials of gospel ministry, when when faced with opposition and persecution, would want to stop and say, it's not worth it? But not so with Paul. Paul said, I am serving the Lord with trials. How could he do these things? Humility, tears, trials. His life was not his own. What do you think about when you hear those three words? Humility, tears, and trials. You put those together. You think, weakness. But Paul's way of life was not weakness. It was full of boldness and courage and confidence and motivation to serve the Lord. That is why it says he did not shrink back. He did not shrink away from declaring to them anything that was profitable. Paul is declaring to them the word of God. Paul did not and could not live on the fringes of gospel ministry. No, he was so motivated by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that he could not and would not shrink away from teaching God's word to the people. And so he did it everywhere he could. 
He taught God's word in public. He taught God's word in private. Basically, wherever Paul went, He went to the hall of Tyrannus in Ephesus. He taught there. He went from house to house among the people. He taught them God's word there. And most importantly, he is heralding the message of the gospel everywhere that he goes. This is what he was testifying as he declared what was profitable. He was testifying to both Jews and Greeks. So what does that tell us? That's everyone. Jews, Gentiles, Paul is testifying to both groups of people, and he is telling both of them the same thing. He is calling them both to the same response. And what I find fascinating here is Paul does not give the full gospel message that he is proclaiming. He just tells us the last part, that is the response to the gospel message. And what is that response? Repentance toward God? And faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And here it is that we see the gospel message and gospel boldness meet. Paul was not content to leave the Jews and the Greeks with the facts of the gospel. He was not content just to give them the knowledge of the gospel. It wasn't enough just that the people knew something about God or knew something about Jesus, he understood that at the end of the day, that was not profitable because it leaves people in their same position. It leaves them stuck in the same problem. And that is that their sinful nature keeps them completely cut off and separated from God. No, Paul knew that what we must also know, the gospel, the good news of salvation, has to come to a call for a response. And when heralded and proclaimed and taught in the right way, it should even leave people longing and desiring for a response. Just like the people in Jerusalem who heard Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost, and it says they were cut to the heart, and they come to him and they say, what must we do? Or like the Philippian jailer, when all of the cell doors of the jail flung open and all the prisoners remained there and the Philippian jailer come, came to Paul and Silas and he says to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The gospel message always comes with the call to respond. And it's the same response for everyone. The gospel does not call for one group of people to do one thing while another must do something else. The response is not a moving target that you have to try to hit. It's not a response that we're even left to figure out on our own, because if left to ourselves, let's be honest, we would never figure it out. No, the response is necessary and laid out for us clearly in God's Word. Repent and believe. These two responses are two different sides of the same coin. They are responses that go together. And as such, cannot and must not be separated. If we are calling people to repentance, it is repenting by faith. And if we are calling people to faith, it is faith through repentance. Repentance towards God. That is the response Paul is testifying to. It's the call for one to first recognize that they are a sinner. It must be that people's eyes are open to the fact that they have sinned, and not just sinned because they have done what is wrong, 
but they've actually sinned against someone. They've actually wronged someone. It isn't that they've hurt themselves or hurt others by the wrong they have done, but that they have actually sinned against the holy God. They have wronged the infinite creator of the universe who has made them in his own image to reflect his glory. But instead of giving thanks to him or submitting to his rule over their lives, they have thought themselves to be wise. And so by going their own way, they have sought to exalt themselves over God who is to be exalted above all others. This is where God grants repentance to help people see their sin, to recognize their rebellion against a perfect and holy God, to see their own desperate state as those who are completely deserving of being separated eternally from God. And they are given a desire to turn away from sin, to forsake sin, to say, I hate sin And that they see their sin for the very first time like God sees their sin. That it is detestable and odious and grievous. And then turning from their sin, they are given God's grace to be able to turn to God and embrace Jesus Christ by faith. Look, it is repentance towards God. It tells us that this is a relationship with God that can be reconciled, that can be healed, that can be brought back together, that the chasm that once separated wretched sinners like us can be bridged, and the only way it is bridged is through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It is His death and resurrection that is able to make us at peace with God and at one with God. Let me tell you something, my friend. This call to repentance cannot and must not be hidden. And we as Christians must not fear it. And let us not pretend that it wasn't difficult for Paul back then to call sinners to repentance. It was just as difficult for Paul to call sinners to repentance as it is to call sinners to repentance today. People do not like to hear about their sin. People do not like to be confronted that they have done wrong, let alone admit their own guilt. But it is something that we must not shy away from. It is something we cannot keep hidden. Paul did not shrink away. We must not shrink away either. Repent and believe. It is putting one's full faith and full trust and full confidence in Jesus Christ and the work he has done on the cross to remove the penalty of sin which we deserved so that we could be forgiven of all of our sin and receive His righteousness and so know eternal life. Faith in our Lord Jesus, faith in the King, faith in what the King has accomplished in sacrificing Himself in our place and confessing now that we are not King We are not Lord, only He is Lord, and He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Believing that not only did Jesus die for us, but that Jesus also rose again on the third day and is now alive forevermore. This is not faith in a dead man. This is faith in Jesus Christ who is now alive, the living Son of God, God of very God and still man of very man. 
And this is absolutely profitable for everyone to hear. Repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ. This was the gospel ministry that Paul was engaged in. And this was the gospel ministry that was his way of life. And so, one more thought for us this morning. Why was this Paul's way of life? Why should gospel ministry be our way of life? Because it was first Christ's way of life. Do we remember how he lived among the people? How he lived perfectly? Do we recall how he served his father with all humility, humbling himself by not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross? Do we recall how he served his father with tears? It says this in Luke 19, and when he drew near the city and saw the city Jerusalem, he wept over it. Or John eleven thirty five, 35, when he was there at the tomb of Lazarus, says Jesus wept. Why did he weep? He weeped because he loved them, because he had invested in them, because he had given himself for them. Do we recall how Jesus had served the Father with trials? We think of the greatest trial of all where he was tried by sinful men, scourged and beaten, and then nailed to a cross of wood to die. Did that stop Jesus from serving? No, even in this trial where the Jews had plotted against his life, and were successful in getting him crucified, even in that moment, he was serving He was serving his Father through the trial. Listen to Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And how? To give his life as a ransom for many. And what is it that Jesus Christ is proclaiming throughout his ministry? The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And maybe that is the call that you need to answer today. Maybe that is right where you need to start. You need to start with the most crucial and vital response, repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can do that today. You can come to Him today. You can find forgiveness from your sin today. You can find life today in Jesus Christ. For us, the church, who find our identity in Christ and know our union with Christ, may we look to Him, the Son of God incarnate, for whom gospel ministry was a way of life. May we look at the Apostle Paul, the Apostle who wrote much of the New Testament, for whom gospel ministry was a way of life. May you pray that Pastors and elders in this church who serve this church, who serve the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, that gospel ministry in us would be a way of life. And would it be so for you that as you follow hard after Jesus, that you know and embrace gospel ministry as a way of life, all for the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need you to assist us. We've heard things from your word today. I pray we've heard things that have been encouraging. I pray that we have heard things that have been instructive. 
pray that we have heard things that are challenging. Reveal to us where gospel ministry is not a way of life for us. Reveal to us where we've gone astray. Bring us back. Bring us back with a desire and a passion to say, I'm all in, wholehearted, not holding anything back. Gospel ministry has to be my way of life. It has to be so for not only you to glorify and honor you, but also for the love of one another, for the encouragement of one another. Thank you that you are our hope, that you are our peace, that you are our joy in all things. May we seek to honor you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.